Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome once again to Football Belongs. I'm Richard Bayless. Before we get into episode three, just a reminder... The written chapter for the topic of The Legend of Anzac is on the Optus Sport app and sport.optus.com.au right now. The podcast and chapter are different to each other, so we recommend you listen and read to get the full experience, in whichever order suits you. For now, though, it's over to your host, David Davudovich. Thanks, Richard. Yes, we've already heard from some of the biggest Australian football names in the opening podcast episodes of Football Belong, starting with a scene setter before we delved into the themes of multiculturalism through a football lens. The epic Socceroos v Croatia match at the 2006 World Cup and the not-so-classic Socceroos AC Milan clash of 93 were the games in focus, plus a tour that never was. I strongly recommend you do take a listen after you complete this one because it is a beauty. Have you ever wondered why football is sidelined during Anzac commemorations? Did you know that entire football teams were killed on European battlefields in World War I? In this episode, we focus on the legend of Anzac through the lens of Australia's 1967 tour of Saigon, where 18 Australian footballers were dropped right into the heart of a raging war zone as a diplomatic envoy and claimed the Socceroos' first ever international trophy. Joining me as always is author and series creator John Didelitzer, who made 27 NSL appearances for Melbourne Knights and Sydney United before serving as FFA legal counsel, Melbourne City Football Director and Chief Executive of the Australian Football Players Union, the PFA. Another very special guest in Socceroos legend Ray Bartz, who's recognised as among the most brilliant players Australia's produced and was part of that infamous tour of Saigon. And Victoria University Literary Studies lecturer and academic Ian Sison, who's written about football's Anzac connections in his book, The Game That Never Happened, The Vanishing History of Soccer in Australia. John Didelitzer, I'll start with you as the author and creator of the series. The specific match you refer to is Australia's 3-2 win over South Korea in the final of the 1967 National Day Football Tournament. Why is it so significant in an Anzac context? Yeah, I think there's probably three dimensions to this, David. Um, and that this whole entire series is about trying to understand the essence of Australia and, and then putting a footballing lens over that. And there's probably three key areas that I think are worthy of discussion. And, and the first of those is the role of the legend of Anzac in Australia. And uh, you know, I think most of us have got a, an awareness of what that is. But, you know, it was born um, as a day of national significance on and 25 April 1915, when Anzac soldiers landed within the Ottoman Empire on a peninsula known as Gallipoli.
and you know just reading some quotes from that time that talk about the stench from rotting corpses putting soldiers through an almost impossible trial um, to the sun setting on 15 mortal hours the Australian and New Zealanders occupied the heights under the incessant shell fire. Without the support of a single gun from the shore. Um, so this crucible of, of Australian mythology since that time has really existed on two planes. One is um, this ritualistic recognition that happens on the 25th of April every year um, where we have a public holiday and, and do the rituals that accompany that day. Mm-hmm. But the second part is this second plane, which is this nebulous thread of Australian identity that it created, the Anzac spirit, and that's evolved over, over decades and into a new century. Um, and that's really what we need to unpack as a part of this. Um, now, why Gallipoli was such a significant moment is, is multi-layered, but just in terms of sheer numbers, about 50,000 Australian troops landed on Turkish soil, of which just over 8,000 were killed and a further almost 18,000 were wounded. Um, and a comment from the Times says, amid the profound destruction, we find an act of national creation. So it sits in many ways at the heart of, or we'd like it to sit at the heart of what it means to be Australian. Uh, Sir William Dean, who was the Governor-General uh, of Australia in the late 90s, would, would say, though born from the doom campaign at Gallipoli, the spirit of Anzac is not really about loss at all. It is about courage and endurance and duty and love of country and mateship and good humour and the survival of a sense of self-worth and decency in the face of dreadful odds. So there's been this religious transcendence that just goes well beyond mere commemoration of Anzac. Mm-hmm. It's a, gone from a ritualistic expression of remembrance. Uh, to a framework of ideals and of values that characterise the way Australians should aspire to live their lives. Um, and within that thread, it's inter- that's in- that thread has intersected with football on innumerable um, instances throughout Australia's history since Federation. Um, we'll talk a little bit about, as you mentioned, some of the, the teams like Ilrimple and Caledonia who were, um, in the case of Ilrimple, um, cancelled as a consequence of their, their troops' commitment to World War I. Um, but moreover, we'll talk about the 1967 Socceroos tournament, the National Day tournament in Saigon. During a tour of Asia, Australian soccer players made a clean sweep, winning the Saigon Asian tournament. Uh, the Johnny Warren described the final as the best game that Australia's ever played. And we had a bunch of 20-somethings heading to Saigon as Australian envoys to represent our nation in that context. Uh, which is an incredible story. It was always made, oh, we'll, we'll send the soccer. If we lose a few of the Sheilas, Wogs and Poofters, it won't matter, you know, that sort of attitude. And it was a fabulous experience, and that's where we were born. That was the basis of the team, which eventually qualified for Germany seven years later. And the third part is this, this modern commercialisation of this Anzac spirit, if you like, and how in, in many ways that commercialisation has sidelined 
football's role as a part of this um, this Anzac spirit, if you like, or this transcendence that Anzac's had through Australian society, that our inability to actually tell our story now through um, the commercial lens through which Anzac Day is commemorated. Some, we're going to get our teeth into all of those topics, some fascinating threads there. But Ray Bartz, you were one of the players on that tour, capped 48 times by the Socceroos, scoring 18 goals. Your career ended prematurely, age 27, after a savage blow to the neck from a Uruguayan opponent in a 1974 World Cup qualifier. Nine years earlier, you were at, Man- at Manchester United in their academy, signed a first-team contract, and you only returned to your native Newcastle in New South Wales, that is, due to home sickness. Now, it's an absolute honour to have you on, Ray. Uh, we'd love you to paint a picture of this 1967 tour for us. Uh, thanks a lot, Dave. It's a long time ago. You know, you, <laughs> oh, the, the memory is a bit vague on a, on a number of things, but um, the team that was picked to go to... Uh, to Vietnam was a follow-up. We played three games earlier in the year against uh, Scotland and there was a more senior Australian team picked for those three games. A number of those boys were unavailable for a number of reasons later in the year or didn't want to go on the tour of Saigon. It was probably not the most attractive place to go to at the time, you know, with the war going on there. Travelling with the team was the ABC soccer commentator Martin Royal. Martin, what was it like? Well, Bill... uh... The time is pretty horrible, um, but not all the time. We had a lot of fun. We um, had a lot of happy moments, and we came back with some very happy memories. We were, of course, a winning team. But um, in Saigon, and when you consider uh, a team uh, playing night after night in front of a crowd, sometimes up to 35,000, very uh, partial towards Australia, I might say, with one exception when we, when we played against Vietnam. Um, when you've got uh, armed guards, scores of, uh, scores of armed guards um, parading the ground constantly with um, automatic uh, rifles at the ready, uh, when you can see the flashes and hear the sound of heavy gunfire, sometimes not more than two or three miles away mm. during a match, th- this, th- these are obviously not ideal conditions not ideal. for football. But the team was picked. It was a team with an average age of only 23. I was only 20 years of age. And, you know, we, we had no hesitation in, in going to Saigon. We really didn't know what we were going into. Uh, at, at no stage did we ever feel we were, we were being dropped right bang in the middle of the war zone or anything like that. It wasn't until we landed in Saigon and saw the might of the American Air Force at, uh, at the airfield in Saigon that we, we realised where we were and what we were in for. Um, you know, the greeting there was fantastic. The, the Vietnamese people were very hospital and, uh, hospitable and very friendly. Uh, they put on a bus to take us to a hotel. The bus had a, a police escort the whole way uh, with sirens blaring and everything to the hotel. Once we got there, you could say the hotel was very basic. Uh, no air conditioning, of course. The food that, that was supplied was unedible. Uh, you couldn't drink the water. Um, so virtually for three days, we lived on Coca-Cola and bread rolls. So <laughs> it wasn't, uh, and you know, in the middle of a war zone, oppressive heat and humidity, it wasn't the best pre- preparation for any um, international uh, football games, you know, but once we... Playing games every two days, mind you. Yeah, and then training in between on a field that was just caked in mud uh, with the police escort to the training field, wherever we go, we're, we're aware of, you know, not venturing too far from the hotel 
our, our trips to the um, to the stadium each day were once again with the police escort in the bus. And then once we got to the stadium, there was soldiers going around the stadium with mine detectors under all the cars, under the bus, and make sure there was no uh, um, nasties hanging around before we even got into the stadium. So, as I said, you know, the games were tough, but the preparation didn't sort of, you know, enlighten things at, at all. But it was, um, it was a tremendous team spirit, a, a you know, I think you develop um, team spirit and camaraderie under difficult circumstances. And, and one thing the coach at the time, uh, Uncle Joe Vlasset, had the, the reputation for was building team spirit. And he built a team spirit that, you know, I think laid the foundation for the, the term the Socceroos and certainly for the, um, the spirit of the Socceroos on that tour. Yeah, we'll touch more on the spirit of the Socceroos later on, but I wanted to introduce Ian Sison, the author of The Game That Never Happened. You wrote about the First World War's crippling effect on the trajectory of soccer in Australia. What are your views on football or soccer's connection um, with Australia's military history and the legend of Anzac? Well, soccer um, has got a, a strong link with the Australian military, and it's it's for a variety of reasons. Um one of them is the uh, is the officers who are in the army were often trained in Britain, although sometimes they were British, and they had a preference for 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 British uh, football games, so rugby and soccer were their were their preferences. So that's that's one thing. But at, at the same time, um, a lot of the people who went into the army were soccer players, and so it's. Um, and, and that's a, that's a much uh, ignored fact, I think. That, uh, so we go back to the Boer War. Australian soccer players went there, and we go to the First World War, and Australian um, soccer players en- um, enlisted with with gusto. It was it was it was remarkable. And um, as John's already mentioned, a number of the, number of clubs were virtually cancelled by by their participation in the war. So many of their players died, and competitions all around Australia stopped um, and uh, and so it was had, had a, the war had a drastic effect on the development of soccer as well uh, moving to the second world war a similar story occurs it's um, we, we go you know the game is there all of the way now I know this stuff because I was triggered <laughs> by a by a comment on a, on a discussion board, which poo-pooed the idea that the Australian armed forces would be have would have any interest in soccer. You know, the, the the guys suggesting it said that it was just absurd to think that people might sit around the the, the bar talking about soccer. And so I, I thought, well, rather than just react to it, I'll I'll investigate. And I basically ended up on this course of understanding this history quite quite deeply. And so. And I, I wish I could find that person and have a chat with them. So, well, actually, <laughs> it's uh, there's quite a strong relationship. And uh, however, um, that comment has a basis, doesn't it? it? Has a basis in in mm-hmm. the the general ignorance of, of the relationship between Australian soccer and and the uh, and the armed forces. And I think Ray's experience, if that was a rugby league team. If that was an Australian rules team, that experience would be elevated to the height of courage and bravery and cultural significance. It's a soccer team. It's kind of unable to be categorised. 
we don't know what to do with it. Um, I just wish that you know that this story was more and more known because it's a it's a really important one. On that point, I want to read out the Australian or Socceroos team sheet from that 1967 final in a moment. But I just want to set the scene with John Didelitzer. So you're the CEO of W Sports and Media. You represent athletes and Olympians from a variety of sports. So your sporting repertoire expands well beyond the round ball code. With that in mind, let's have a read, a listen of the team sheet on that day. Ron Corrie, George Keith, Stan Ackerley, Manfred Schaefer, Dick Van Alphen, Alan Westwater, Tommy McCall, Adi Abonyi, Johnny Warren, the captain, Ray Bartz, and Billy Wojtek. Those names are largely anonymous, John, in Australia, both in a football um, in some ways, um, but more so in an Australian sports context. Why is that so? Yeah, I think, I think it's an important observation, uh, David, that it's not only that a lot of these names are invisible in the mainstream, they're actually invisible within our football community. Um, so that's something we need to get um, exceedingly uh, more accomplished at is, is taking ownership of these stories and really driving these stories. Um, but it does, it does contrast. In, re- in researching this, what was quite confronting or, or certainly jarring was the elevated esteem we might give to athletes across other sports who might perform great deeds on the pitch in Anzac Day games. Mm-hmm. You know, they enhanced their legend by having, having 32 possessions against Essendon and being granted the Anzac Day medal at the MCG. Taror, who's uh, our favourite to win the Anzac medal. And the winner of the Anzac Day medal is Adam Trelaw of the Collingwood Football Club. The tradition continues. Takiaho has got it. And he strides away. Takiaho. He puts a seal on the Anzac Day game. Whereas here we have young men in the the average age of that squad, I think David was 23. 23. So basically the Oli Roo squad was sent yeah, over yeah. to a war zone. This is a bunch of young guys who were just probably straight out of a trade or taken off the shop floor at a factory and dropped in Saigon. And as Ray will no doubt detail later on, put through the most incredible experience for yeah, the best part of a few weeks. And their recognition is recognition is zero. They have no capacity or no platform to tell this story. Um, they're not handed, and, and Ian made the point of these stories unhanded from one generation to the next. And it's incredibly sad. Um, it's incredibly sad that we know that certain players may have won three Anzac Day medals at the MCG, but we don't know that 18 young guys were dropped into that war zone and risked their lives. Mm-hmm. Ray, uh, I just wanted to clarify something, speaking of historical records. They do differ uh, as to the goal scorer in the final, the score of the first goal. What we do know is that it was an incredible solo effort, as John refers to in his chapter. Johnny Warren scored the first goal, the second goal. That's Second goal, okay. Yeah. All right. Was the second goal scored by you, Ray Bartz, or was it Billy Wojtek? Um, to be honest with you, David, <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> that means Billy scored it. <laughs> it could have been, but it, 
it really didn't matter because you know we, we were we were a team and we were a team spirit and we all you know fought for one another and you know we you know we may not have had the individual skill of the South Koreans or or whatever but we had the the Anzac spirit I think you know as was we've spoken about and we had the will to win and you know whoever scored the goal it was a team effort and didn't matter but no I think I scored it mate to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> hey no doubt about the semi-final goal it was a solitary goal you scored uh, in extra time no less can you talk us through that one uh, well, the, the, we we played in the, con, the conditions the whole way through the tournament were very um, heavy. You know, there was a lot of rain. The ground was muddy. There were so many. All the games were played on the one ground, by the way. So you can imagine the state of the ground by the time we got to the to the final after two weeks. There was an enormous amount of games. So it was like playing in a quagmire. And and they talk about you know Frank Mitchick at the time was the mm. best player in Victoria, and he was a very skilled skillful silky sort of player frank played the first game over there but because of the conditions never played another game they just didn't suit him and he never got another opportunity unfortunately but you know by the time we got to the final the ground was heavy and you know i think the ball from memory just landed it in my feet around i used to like to pick up a ball around the edge of the penalty box and just hammer it as hard as i could and hope for the best and um and it and it just you know went in and you know it was a tremendous feeling at the time Ray, can you tell us about the fight after the game? Is it true that the military police had to intervene to break up the teams? Uh, there was a bit of pushing and shoving and whatever, but nothing, nothing any serious. They, the the South Koreans had a. Um, are we talking about the, the Malaysia game? Or, Apparently, the, oh, Malaysia, the Malaysia game. game. Yeah. Oh, that you know, I think it was you know our team was in the conditions. A lot of the tackles were probably a little bit late, you know, because of the conditions and so forth. And our our team was probably a bit bigger and a little bit more physical. And you know, they hadn't experienced. Um, those sort of games and uh, against those sort of players because there, there wasn't a lot of touring European teams going to Asia in in that era, so they um, they resented a lot of the tackles and you know which weren't unfair, but they were just physical. And at the end of the game, some of the emotions just blew over a little bit more than normal. You're very modest, Ray. Um, I want to <laughs> pick up on a point that Ian made earlier um, regarding uh, Australia's uh, or, or football's uh, role um, in an Australian military sense. And I wanted to talk to something that goes to the heart of this Anzac spirit that John writes about and that he mentioned, the great mateship and camaraderie between the Socceroos and the Australian soldiers uh, right throughout uh, that 1967 tour. Can you tell us about that? Well, you know, the, the whole idea of us going there in the first one, first place was a PR exercise as a uh, it was called the Saigon friendship tournament you know for, for one reason or another and all the 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 countries that were unified in the the fight against the North Vietnamese were represented in the uh, in the tournament so it was a you know a, going into a tournament that we didn't really know a lot about and um, we didn't know what to expect but after three days not being able to eat the food and drink the water uh, the army, a few of the army boys who were stationed over there that some of the local guys knew, I think Ronnie Corrie knew some boys that played with Canterbury and that for instance and they used to come and hang around the hotel a little bit and, and then they realised you know, how tough we were doing it and they'd organised with their superiors to you know, supply us some steak and some milk and whatever which was honestly a lifesaver at that stage and 
And then we got the invitation to go to the Australian uh, headquarters in Saigon. Um, they, the bus would be supplied with the police escort. We go down there and have a feed there, which was a, a, a great break to get away from the hotel because it was pretty basic, as I said before. And we could have a game of snooker or, or do whatever we want and to get away for a couple of hours and have a decent food. Some decent food was fantastic. But I might admit that the base was right in the centre of downtown Saigon. There was a, a sandbagged uh, bunker type thing out the front of that with armed uh, soldiers in that. And if a, if a car pulled up within 50 metres of it, they would fire a warning shot. Um, they would fire another one if it didn't move, and if it didn't move again, the next shot was fired at that car. And quite often when we were inside the hotel, we heard the guns going off two or three times. So it was a little bit unnerving at the time, but um, the good food made up for it well and truly. <laughs> uh, Ian, I'll, I'll throw it back to you, and I guess just off the back of Ray's comments now that he's painted a real picture for us of this tour and a point that you wanted to make about the ordinariness of yeah. of this yeah well it's it's soccer um has, has the problem the general problem of seeming alien seeming seeming foreign seeming that it doesn't quite belong in australia and the point i would make is that many of these soccer players who um who enlisted in the australian armed forces in both wars in the boer war we're just ordinary people, ordinary Australians, and when you read their their biographies, their little biographies, when they when they when they're mentioned in the newspapers, you realise that they're just, you know, they're just so ordinary. It's it's not funny. It's and you've got some examples of that. Well, I do have some examples. I've got um, I prepared a list of of soldiers who were killed in the First World War. I, I found seven soldiers who, whose death notices. Uh, were in the in the various papers. This one's from Adelaide, Private A.L. Jin of the 27th Battalion. Um, he was killed in action in France on the August 29. He was only 24 years of age and was a prominent athlete, a member of the Sir James Ferguson, Hawthorne and Adelaide Cricket Club, South Adelaide Football Club, and a champion soccer player. He worked for Messrs. Thompson and Harvey, where he was highly esteemed by a large circle of friends. This is not a special biography. This is just an ordinary person, even though he's quite a, quite a good sportsman across a number of sports. In Brisbane, the friends of Mr and Mrs Homer of Indrapilly will regret to learn that they've received a cable message from one of their sons at the front stating that his brother Harry had died suddenly of illness, the Dardanelles. Now, the deceased was well known in sporting circles, having been a keen soccer football player. At the time of leaving for the front, he was captain of the Indrapilly CV Cricket Club. Just a regular guy. A telegram, this is from Geraldton in Western Australia. A telegram was received by Dean Drain yesterday conveying the news that Private J. Allen had been killed at the Dardanelles. Private Allen, with his brother Sergeant Vince Allen, volunteered with the first contingent from Geraldton. Deceased was about 21 or 22 years of age, was engaged on the jetty. He worked on the jetty. He's very popular and was a member of the Thistle Football Club. Mm. The number of people who played for Thistle Football Clubs around Australia who were killed is just phenomenal. I mean, it says something about the, the proclivities of Scots Protestants to, to join the army, I guess. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting. Wollongong. I've got Melbourne. I've got Launceston. This one's, I'll, I'll read the Launceston one out because this is really interesting. It's been officially reported to Mrs Waters of 32 Canning Street that Corporal R. Gordon Powell of the 26th Battalion has been missing since August 5th. That usually means killed. Corporal Powell was a well-known central harrier and a member of the Elfin Soccer Club. 
the Elf, the Elfin Soccer Club enlisted Holus Bolus. Every member of that club enlisted and went off, um, and that's a club that in, in, uh, lost Launceston. It actually reunited after the war and restarted, so uh, not too many of them were killed. Only a few were killed. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So it was an extraordinary tour from a Socceroos viewpoint. 10 wins in 10 games, national headlines. In Australia, received a hero's welcome upon returning to Sydney Airport. Last night at Mascot Airport, there was a reception which, according to one official, was the biggest thing since the Beatles. It was the welcome to the Australian soccer team, which has just returned home with the Vietnam National Day Cup and a record of 10 victories in 10 matches on their Asian tour. Johnny Warren said the tour was a real national milestone, obviously headlined by that final. John, can I get you to talk to the significance of that that match and that tournament from a football viewpoint. Yeah, I think you said earlier, Dave, there was 10 games and 10 wins and our first ever international trophy. So purely on a footballing level, it's worthy of merit and one of our great achievements. But the fact that it occurred in the context that it did just adds so much more. And, you know, one of the, you know, we, we all love the, um, I mean, I certainly grew up with Johnny Warren and for me, he was a, a real hero um, as I, you know, matured into a young man who loved football, but moreover loved the context in which football operated or the universe that it inhabited or built. And I can't help but thinking that, I can't help but think how, how influenced Johnny would have been about football um, through that tour and seeing the powerful impact that football could have on so many people. No Australian team would, would ever put up with those conditions, without any doubt, now. And there was no alternative. But against that, that also bonded the team. They, they had to be very, very good, uh, get on well with each other and help each other, and they did. You know, he was, he was a guy born, you know, in Randwick, um, not predisposed to football in any way, didn't have a, a background of, of being involved in football. Um, but he would evolve to become probably the person I think that straddled the two worlds of Australia more deeply than anyone. So he, he was somebody who was the, the kid from suburban Sydney. So he had one foot in that camp, but he had another foot in this um, footballing universe. And that's something that as a, as a code would never been able to do effectively to transition across from one to the other from how do we become how why are we always separate from mainstream Australia and, and that was Johnny's great mission to explain to people that this this game wasn't merely about um it didn't belong in one quadrant or one section of Australian society but it actually reflected who we were 
And that was borne out by the names of the players who went on that tour that you read out earlier. The, the, these, this was the changing face of Australia. We had a lot of children of migrants who had come post-World War II into Australia. Uh, and Raid spoke about how this was the, the crucible or the, the catalyst for the Socceroos name. And it was that because for the first time, we had a national team who represented the changing face of Australia. And to this day, the, the Socceroos and the Matildas, I think, do that more effectively than any other team. And that sort of happened in 67. Um, and then you have this journey for, for Johnny understanding that at the time, seeing that, and then spending his whole life, um, you know, tr as a great advocate as to how football can make us the most effective nation that we need to be. And there's no doubt that that trip to Saigon shapes that thinking. It's no doubt that he then comes home to Australia and continues to preach in that way. Uh, because of those experiences. And that's had such an, such a huge impact on so many people's lives. You know, the, the nation crying with him when we failed to qualify for the 1997 World Cup and this interdependency that he preached about, about football success and Australia being able to successfully emerge from behind the colonial curtain. And th these sorts of stories clearly would have shaped that thinking. Absolutely. And even later in life, and we know you mentioned how passionate Johnny Warren was about Australian football. Even later in life, he listed this as one of the best games Australia has ever played. And I'll read you an excerpt uh, from Johnny Warren, but it's uh, it's referenced in your chapter, John Didlitzer. Quote, I often say that the team should march in the Anzac Day Parade because of the role we played in the war. Even the entertainers that toured Vietnam were in a controlled situation at the Australian bases while we were right in the middle of the action. Here we were, a bunch of young kids who were expected to play soccer while a major war raged around us. I don't think the team has ever received the recognition it deserved for its war efforts. The tournament in Vietnam is so special to the guys involved and is permanently connected to the birth of the team that later became known as the Socceroos. There you have it in Johnny Warren's words. I'll throw it over to you, Ray Bartz, to, I guess, take that, uh, take that further. Um, well, you've got, you've got to set the scene before the tour. You know, two years earlier, we played our first World Cup qualifying campaign against North Korea. We, we were hammered in, in, um, in that campaign. I call it the Australian sporting Gallipoli of not having a clue where we were going, walking into a, into a trap of a Korean team which ended up finished in, up in the quarterfinals of the of the World Cup when there were only 16 teams qualified. As a result, you know, we, we sort of looked to say, well, what can we do better? Johnny was appointed captain for the first time on this tour of Vietnam. Johnny Warren was only 24 years of age at the time. And, you know, we, we talk about the team spirit and the, uh, the mateship, you know, that was developed on that tour. And most of that team spirit was you can revert that back to Johnny's captaincy. You know, Johnny led by example, both off the field and on the field. And, you know, there's nobody that put in more effort, you know, in any game than what Johnny did. Um, you, he talks about the service medal that the entertainers um, received for going to Vietnam. We never asked for or, or received any any compensation or reward or anything going over there. I was 20 years of age. A lot of my mates had been conscripted and they were over there fighting. They, you know, they, they were out in the middle of the jungles and whatever. So, you know, I, my reward was to be there to entertain, you know, whatever troops were around there and to give as much as we could. 
um, and and to represent Australia. You know, it was always an honour. And I, and I might say that after after the the win against South Korea in the final, which was uh, one of the toughest games I've ever played in, and and in Johnny's words, one of our best ever performances. The next day, we went to Vung Tau to. Um, at the, at the request of the the troops down there, where the main army base was, and you know we we played a game against the troops down there in Vungtau, right in the thick of it all, and you know that that was more satisfying and to mingle with the guys that were over there than anything. So, um, you know, all in all, it was it was a tough tour, but it was you know a very rewarding and very satisfying tour. Just to bring it back to the final now crowd estimates ranging anywhere from 35 to 65,000. I'm not sure if you've got an estimate on how many people were there Ray but this goes to the heart of the Anzac spirit. So the Socceroos you players were told pre-game that the stadium could not absorb any more fans. So Australian troops who had supported you guys from the outset were locked out. You guys were incensed. You took a stand and said, no Aussie troops, no match. And soon enough, the, the seats became available. Can you just uh, expand on that story? Well, that was basically it in a nutshell, Dave. You know, when we, when we found out that the troops that had, you know, supported us so much over the last two weeks weren't going to be uh, uh, allowed into the stadium, there, w- there was no seats available. Uh, we said, well, look, hang on a minute. You know, we're not playing unless these guys can get in here. You know, this is what we're here for. And, you know, in the, I guess the last minute, they decided to let the troops in and, and sat them around the perimeter of the ground, at ground level, down on the, no seats, but just basically on the ground around the, and we knew they were there. You know, they couldn't have sat in a better spot, to be honest with you. <laughs> so it was a, it was, it was a, a tremendous boost for us and, uh, you know, a, a tremendous uh, shot in the arm before the game to know that they were there supporting us. VIP seats these days, they'd be expensive tickets. <laughs> I, I love this story. I love that that part of it. I also love the trip to Vung Tau when you, when you played against the troops because yeah. these are moments that mm. make the myth fall apart. Mm. Make yeah. the myth fall apart that Austra- the Australian Army has nothing to do with soccer or the Australian Armed Forces yeah. have nothing to do with soccer. When in fact, you talked about mates... In the army who'd played for Canterbury, yeah. In Sydney, you talked. Uh, you, you, your conscripted mates. I'm, I'm sure some of them were soccer players. They all were. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, you know, this this. Where did this go? Where did this information go? And it's uh, it's you've you're, you've got it right. That's great that you've got it. But where did this information go to to disappear? Yeah, and mm. I think a lot of that Ian comes back. You know, to I'll take your role here, David, and segue to another section of this is the inability of Australian football to become institutionalized. Mm. So you look at the key institutions, the key cultural uh, monoliths of our society, and football plays little to no role Mm. in any of those. And you talk really effectively about this post-World War I Mm. and how when these troops that went off to World War I, and we spoke about the team just outside of Mildura called Il Rimple, who lost eight on, I think, basically as a consequence of the deaths they suffered through World War I, they didn't. They never, uh, they, there was no football team in Rumpel until the 1970s, where I think a Croatian team yeah. came up nice. in the 70s. So they had 60 years, 65 years without football as a consequence of World War I. You had Caledonia, who lost effectively their entire team or a large part of it and had a few years to regroup before they could start playing football again. Um, and notably, there was no break to the VFL season during those years. There was no break to the... The, not the NRL then, but the state-based rugby league City competition. Rugby league, yeah. They continued as normal, whereas mm. every single soccer mm-hmm. competition mm. 
was brought to an end. Yeah. So we come back, we the, the football players come back to start playing their game again and they find a nation that effectively closes them out mm. from access to facilities um, and a range of other things. It's one of those periodic resets that's, that soccer has. You know, I've talked about that in other forums where, you know, we've been, we're being asked to reset again. But in fact, let's not reset. Let's actually go back and, and kind of recover that history that we have. And you delved into it, John, um, post-World War One. for instance, you reference in the chapter how soccer was warmly received back into Melbourne in the post-war years and even played at the MCG in 1920 and 1925 with great success and cooperation from the VFL, but didn't uh, expand much beyond that. And uh, that was obviously uh, replicated or fairly consistent around the country. Can you just expand on that? Yeah, I think Ian's probably better positioned to speak with some authority on that. But certainly there's, you know, pens, pencils were sharpened to write against the game at every opportunity. So there was this acquiescence to football provided it didn't pose a threat to the established forces of the time. This is 100 years ago. Yeah, so yeah, mm. correct. And we have, as you pointed out, David, there was games at the MCG that were, you know, incredibly successful. Um, but you have situations where in Adelaide and in Hobart where they refused access to state-owned facilities. Or oh, sorry, AFL at the time, Aussie Rules tenants refused access to state-owned facilities to football. Um and there's some commentary on that in Hobart in particular, where they say that, why should we let the game that had no involvement in our war effort now take the place of our brave Aussie rules footballers? Well, it says that by implication, because yeah. what it says is that a, a, a game, you know, Aussie rules is a game that, that shed blood for this country. And so we should have access to these sporting facilities as if no other game did the same thing. Um, you know, and obviously, obviously, Australian rules players joined up and went to war. You know, wouldn't wouldn't try to say that wasn't the case at all. But it's um, it's just it's the way that we get shoved out. And that that letter you're talking about is a perfect example. And I think in in the late twenties, the VFL gets on a war footing. It starts to it starts to see the problem. It starts to see that soccer is becoming a threat. Soccer is becoming you know quite quite powerful. It's booming at the time. And so it's, it starts to reassert itself. It starts to regenerate its propaganda campaigns. It openly admits that it involved in propaganda campaigns. You know, and, and soccer, in its usual way, <laughs> cooperates by splitting all around Australia at the same time. But, you know, the splits are, um, you know, possibly a product of the, the, that other kind of pressure as well. So, it's, I mean, that's, that's a whole other story, though. I want to bring it forward a little bit now. So in your chapter, John Didlitzer, you referenced Bob Hawke, who became Prime Minister in 1983, and how he took up Anzac as a means of building bridges with Vietnam veterans who were, quote, dissatisfied with their treatment by government and wider public after returning from war. Now, can you just elaborate on how uh, this commercialisation has affected football? Yeah, I, I think just to run through some of the ebbs and flows of history is from the research that I did. And there's some, some obviously some fantastic literature out there that speaks to these sorts of things. Um, but there was a real um, reset, to use your words, Ian, around 
the, the mythology that surrounded Anzac Day under the Prime Ministership of Bob Hawke. This was really the birthplace, I think, of our spirit of nationhood. Uh, he was the first PM to speak of making a pilgrimage to, to Gallipoli, and, and that was very much to try and as a reaction to many of the um, Vietnam vets who had been uh, treated poorly or, or neglected in their return to Australia. Um, so, look, I think it's an important caveat to say we're not making judgments about the valour or otherwise of war here. This is a political decision made by, by Hawke to try and bring together what appeared to be a dis- disenfranchised group. So he started investing significant more time and political capital in building um, the Anzac mythology. And at the point, football, at that stage, football clearly didn't have a strong leg up in many of the institutions uh, within Australia. So other parts of the Australian community uh, were accelerated ahead of, of where football was. Uh, I'll just read you out a, a, actually a statement from Bob Hawke. He made this speech at Lone Pine um, when he spoke about the Anzac spirit. In that recognition of the special meaning of Australian mateship, the self-recognition of their dependence upon one another, these Australians, by no means all of them born in Australia, drawn from every walk of life, and different backgrounds cast upon these hostile shores. There lay the genesis of the Anzac tradition. When I read those words, I just thought of the 1967 Socceroos. Mm -hmm. That's who they were. And Bob Hawke is um, articulating what he sees as his defining Australian quality, yet he refers almost to exactly what Ray's been telling us about, yet football's invisible as a part of that conversation and a big part of that is this commercialization and some people in some of their books have called it the disneyfication of anzac it's become this business um which is incredibly regrettable if that's the case and the fact that soccer doesn't form a part of leading corporates leading institutions we don't have our hands on the till of the australian government we're not able to inject ourselves into this national debate we can't tell the stories of raised team the Socceroos of 67. We're not able to do that because we don't actually have the platform to be able to tell that story and embed it into the myth building that's happened, you know? And that's not to suggest that we should be ahead of the other sports, not at all. But it's the fact that we need to be considered like every other Australian story. Uh, it's, it's fair nation. One of, the, one of the aspects of the resetting of Anzac was... Um, culturally, was Peter Weir's film, Gallipoli. I repeat, the attack must proceed. I want you all to remember who you are. Please come home. The 10th Light Horse, men from Western Australia. <laughs> it was a very powerful film. It made a strong argument about the, uh, the, the perfidy of the British officers and, you know, sending Australian troops into suicide missions and you know it's it's a very it's a movie that makes you quite angry when you watch it it's it's quite a moving movie but it i realize that it's it's actually it tells a few fibs when we see the the troops the western australian troops gathered you see you, you hear them all speaking and they're speaking in australian accents and in my research, I realised that that wouldn't actually have been the case because about a third of those troops would have had Scottish or English accents. 
because the very first wave of um, of, of uh, Western Australian volunteers were were well not overwhelmingly but substantially British born, and and so many of those guys were as we know were soccer players. You know the the Geraldton boy I just read out. He he mm. played soccer in Geraldton. He was on the first boat to Gallipoli. And um, these people are absent in Peter Weir's film. And in fact, the only, the only sport, apart from running in Peter Weir's film, is when they're kicking a footy on the beach at Gallipoli. When, you know, the, 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 the culture of those soldiers would have been much more diverse. And, you know, as, if you've read the book, you'll know that there was a game of soccer at Gallipoli. Mm. Ray Butts, just to uh, bring you back in, Australian football great. Uh, not sure if you've got any particular views off the back of those comments, but how have you viewed the Australian war narrative and particularly the legend of Anzac over the last 53 years in an Australian context and, and football's place in that? Well, I, I think it's been obvious by its absence, to be honest with you. You know, we the only... Uh, involvement I've ever had or ever seen is the tour that we had of Vietnam. I don't, to my knowledge, there hasn't been any other um, involvement whatsoever and it's been um, just sadly missing in our game. So has, have there been any commemorations um, even within the, the, the football industry, within various federations, national, state federations? But I, Just on that point, David, I don't think it's I think the broader point to be made here is that it's not for, this isn't about football promoting itself as being this great contributor to Australia's um, war history. Okay. This is about why hasn't, why haven't the mainstream institutions of Australian life been telling that story side by side Mm. with other sports? And that's what we're trying to unpack here is because it shouldn't be for the local Newcastle Association or Football Victoria or whoever else to say, look at us, look how great we were, we contributed to the war effort. Because maybe it wasn't necessarily that good to contribute to the war effort because a lot of awful things happen. Um, so it's not about making a value judgment on that. What, it, what it's about saying is as a nation, we have mythologized or created this myth around Anzac and we use it at every conceivable opportunity. You know, we're investing over a billion dollars in a new Australian war memorial. Um, we treat the Anzac Day AFL clash as if it's um, the man landing on the moon. Yet we can't, within these institutions, find the smallest window to tell a story as powerful as Ray's and the Socceroos of 67. And that is the big challenge that Australia as a nation has. And that's you know speaks to how football has been systematically sidelined, delegitimised, um, since 1918, or well before that, ain't no doubt. Yeah. Um, well, there is one thing that uh, that Adamstown does every year on on Anzac Day. It has a Anzac Day game. I don't know if you've, you've, you you go to that, Ray, but uh, one of the one of the Adamstown players was killed at Gallipoli, and and I just forget his name at the moment. But I've been in discussions with with John Connor and a few other people to try and get a, a medal struck in his honor for the you know the best on the ground on that on that game so there are little things we can do and you know maybe we can have a chat about that down the track too ray yeah yeah well i'm not aware of that and to be honest with you and um you know i think that's fantastic if they do that i know that there is a lot of um association with the first war uh you know the guys from the 
that went to the first war from the Newcastle area. You know, there was a lot of English miners, miners here. There's, my uh, grandkids, uh, or some of them, go to Dudley Primary School, which is a little village just outside Newcastle, and that um, that that primary school produced two VC winners. Now I'm sure that those both of those guys coming from a a little mining village in the Hunter would have been soccer players as well. Yeah. And you've got me intrigued about that now, and I'm going to sort of dig into that and just yeah. see if they did play. Yeah. I want to get your final summations. It's been a fascinating chat. I want to start with you, Ray Bartz, Socceroos, great. Now, I guess just your closing remarks, whose responsibility is it to properly recognise the feats and sheer bravery of this Australian squad that went into the war zone to play football and win this tournament, which was the Socceroos' first international tournament win well i don't know if it's anybody's responsibility to you know the, to chase a, a medal or whatever for the players but speaking on behalf of the players we were honored to represent our country we were honored to be there and to support the war effort and support the soldiers over there and if anything uh, does come out of it you know it's not something we would expect um but if we did receive some sort of recognition from it we we would be um, very humble to to accept that, and I'm sure, especially on on behalf of the effort that Johnny put in, Johnny Warren put in to to reward the players accordingly. Ian Sison, how does football claim its rightful place within the legend of Anzac? Well, we just start remembering. I mean, that that's it's almost as simple as that. We we start remembering, but we remember that term I used before, our ordinariness. We, we remember how we were just simply a part of something that's seen to be an important moment in a, or important moments in Australian history. The, uh, the problems with the 67 Vietnam game are the same as the problems uh, of the Second World War, the same as the problems of the First World War and even the Boer War. Um, we need to remember. Um, it's our responsibility as a game to remember, but it's also Australia's responsibility as a culture, as a society, to remember its whole stories properly. So, you know, it's it's not just our responsibility, but it is also our responsibility. John Didlitzer, the series author, I'll leave the final words to you. Yeah, I like Ian's point, is that this isn't about football having to assume responsibility to propagate its role in war. It's about testing the validity of Australia's conversation in dealing with this huge national myth and, and football's absence from it. You know, and I think from my perspective, the hyper-commercialisation of Anzac in recent decades means that a sport like football with no institutional grounding finds it incredibly challenging to compete for oxygen to tell these stories. Yet, you know, again, having listened to Ray again and having read so much literature from that time, um, you know, assessed against any conventional understanding as to what Anzac might mean, you know, selflessness, mateship, commitment, Soccer is a sport that's not found wanting. It's more than done its bit um, through this journey. And the fact that the Saigon Socceroos, Ilrimple, Caledonia, don't stand shoulder to shoulder with Essendon and Collingwood says a lot about how football soccer is perceived um, within Australia and, and the fact that it is disenfranchised in many ways. Boys, it's been a fascinating chat. A particularly big thank you to Ian Sison and the great Ray Bartz for joining us to reflect on The Legend of Anzac. Uh, remember, it is a 10-part series available uh, on Optus Sport platforms, both the podcast 
and the written chapters. Thanks for joining us and we'll catch you again very soon. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.